welcome to the Ag Show podcast. Again, I am your host, Johan Buck, aka Doc Buck. And joining me today is a very special friend of mine. Oh goodness, I, I think we are going on a decade putting up with each other. And my last guest is my current guest's fellow co-host on a podcast called The Grower and the Economist, my dear friend, Dr. Peter Conjoyan. Hello, sir. How are you? Well, hello, Dr. Buck. Hi, Johan. It's nice to be with you. Well, thank you for joining me today. I know we've had to uh, kind of reschedule due to our, our busy schedules and whatnot, so I appreciate your patience and good to, good to nail down some time with you. So I'll do a, I'll do a brief introduction, and then I'd like you to, to you know, jump into maybe your background and upbringing. But Peter and I, oh goodness, we met at an event called Cultivate, formerly the Ohio Short Course. And I think it was, yeah, it was about a decade ago. And I was working for a greenhouse distribution company. And this is when horticultural LED lighting was really kind of starting to take off. Prior to that, it was more... LEDs were more research oriented and Peter you know chime in in a moment there was a lot of kind of hesitancy around LEDs oh it'll never work this that and the other and what have you and there were a lot of companies and I can always compare when I discuss biostimulants I use the analogy or the comparison to LED technology there were a lot of companies making a lot of claims and only a fraction of those companies were actually performing and you, Peter, were hosting a group. So you were taking people around to different booths at Cultivate, which is a large trade show and educational seminars. And I was working the booth for this company. My friends at Hort Americas, if you're in the greenhouse business, and if you don't know of Hort Americas, give them a, give them a look. They're a great company. And we were one of the early adopters of LED technology. And Peter, you came by with a group and we just, we hit it off. The next thing I know, I'm visiting your operation in Massachusetts and we're drawing up research plans and looking at different, you know, how, how you could help us with research. And gosh, we've worked on several projects since then and, and have become friends throughout that course of time. You know, Johan, it's, it's uh, very interesting that you, you're, you're starting off taking us back to that original because most of the time together, you and, and me, has been in the arena of biostimulants. And I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point as we meander through this conversation. But uh, yes, you're allowing me to reflect on uh, how, how fast, uh, how quickly this, this arena of LED lighting has changed and evolved and progressed. Coincidentally, in, in the hour before um, hooking up with you this morning, I was reading the current issue of Greenhouse Product News Magazine, GPN, and uh, two of our colleagues have lighting Articles in that in this current issue, one is Dr. Eric Runkel at Michigan State University, and he he wrote an article encapsulating what what you just said how how much LED lighting has evolved and how much better it is now than it was a decade ago, and then another shared colleague of ours, uh, Mark Van Ersel at the University of Georgia, uh, was uh, speaking about LED controls and how how the technology of the controller that is uh, now telling the LED when to uh, when to burn when to rest and and the dimmability of the new 
uh, LED bulbs. So, so it's all fascinating, Johan. It's it's changing. Uh, it's like the Earth shifting under our feet. It's changing so quickly. And uh, you know, for for me, having grown up in New England, we have a saying: if you don't like the weather, wait a minute. And I think, <laughs> isn't it true with some of it's the technology? So whether it's biostimulants or, or LED uh, lighting, it's uh, okay. If you don't like where we are today, just, uh, you know, blink and uh, wait a minute and we'll, we'll catch up. We'll get there. Yeah, you got that right. And, and two of two people that I respect very well, and it's, it's, it's also enjoyable to see how they, how their, <clears throat> excuse me, how their careers have evolved over time. Dr. Runkles, not so much. You know, he's primarily been involved in LEDs. I think early on he was doing a lot of temperature work, if I remember correctly. And you know, then Mark, I remember working with him on early sensors. So to see him move towards the control side of LEDs is not a surprise to me. If you've known Mark long enough, uh, he's always dabbled in in those types of things. And now, is, now I sh- shouldn't say he's no longer dabbling. He has his own company around this, and it has been interesting to see. And it hasn't taken that long, 10 years, give or take, as, right. in, as much as things have changed. So speaking of changing over time, let, let's fill in the listeners a little bit about more about who you are. Take, take me back to, are you from Massachusetts originally? How did you get into horticulture? Let's, let's go back a ways and, and tell us a little bit about yourself. All right, Johan. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Um, Yes, I, I grew up here in, in eastern Massachusetts. I'm in a town named Andover, about 30 miles north and west of, of Boston. And I grew up on a, a small family truck farm, uh, truck farm for, for those. Uh, every now and then you get someone that doesn't understand what the phrase truck farm or what that terminology means. And, and that's uh, a, a small farm that uh, grows produce. Uh, we had row crops. Special. We specialized in trellis tomatoes, cucumbers, uh, zucchini squash, and butternut squash in the fall. And a truck farm is simply, you know, a farm where you load up your produce in a truck, take it into a wholesale distribution center, and uh, and uh, off you go. That's how we did our business. Um, it was in 1960 that my father saw. Uh, handwriting on the wall in terms of making a living farming in New England. And he built his first greenhouse in 1960 and decided that uh, flowers and ornamental crops was an area or or category of, of farming that he wanted to get into. So over the course of uh, through the 60s into the mid 70s, we had this um, uh, a dynamic in the family farm, Johan, where the greenhouse business was growing and expanding. At the same time, the farm was uh, kind of uh, retracting a little bit. So we had this uh, playing where over the course of this dozen years or so, we were doing both, which is fairly common for a lot of uh, horticultural operations, uh, have a greenhouse operation and then move out to the farm in the summertime. So I'm going to um, assume that we will enjoy conversing back and forth. So instead of me just talking 10 minutes about my background, let me let me give you opportunities to jump in. So so we're in the 60s, early 70s, uh, family truck farmers operating. Uh, the ornamental greenhouse slash garden center operation is is rising. And uh, so so it was a mixed mixed operation. And 
um, those roots of mine um, continue to serve me today, Johan. So uh, when when you and I first met, I was still primarily a horticultural researcher, consultant, educator in ornamental horticulture, greenhouse operations, bedding plants, etc. And uh, since you and I met in this past decade, I've just about flip-flopped completely. And going back to the 60s and 70s, you know, now I'm I'm focusing more on hydroponic food production and edible crop production. Um, and and the the way I describe my research is uh, during this decade, as I've shifted my emphasis, um, I've I've called my umbrella research project from flowers to food. And so for me, it's closing that circle. I started out with farming as a youngster. We shifted to garden center for the majority of my career. And now I'm returning to those original roots and getting back to the farming and, and the agriculture side. What were some of the lessons you learned early on in your, in your truck farm experience and going into floriculture? 60s and 70s. So these, when I hear greenhouse agriculture, 70s, I start thinking about the difficulties of heating greenhouses in the upper Midwest and on the East Coast and, and the challenges that farms faced during, as a result, I think of the oil embargo. You know, this is right before I was born. I was born in 1980. So I kind of was born and wasn't aware of the world for quite a few years. But, you know, looking back on the his- history of greenhouse agriculture, that's one of the things that has come up. And I think we'll get into this in a moment, but it's interesting in Ohio and East, the, the, greenhouse agriculture business kind of because of those challenges went away. And now it's interesting to see all those companies coming back into Ohio, for example, and building 60, 80, 100 or more acres of greenhouses. But again, my original question, as a, as a youngster growing up on the family truck farm, what was, what was that like for you? Oh, what a, what a perceptive question, Johan. You're, you're, Allowing me now, I'm being washed over with a, a flood of childhood memories. Um, oh, 99 of, of 100 of my comments and memories are so positive. They're, they're so good. Uh, I have such a fond memory of growing up on, on a farm. Uh, part of that was that um, we lived with my mother's parents. So for the first 10 years of my life, I grew up in a three-generation household. Um, my grandparents um, fled Armenia in the um, during the Turkish uh, genocide in the late 19 teens. Uh, they arrived in the United States with nothing and found their way to uh, purchasing a, a plot of land, starting a farm, starting a family. Um, so I've got such memories of, of growing up in this household. Uh, it was a broken English and mixed with Armenian. So it was a, uh, we, you know, spoke, spoke both languages. And uh, to this day, I, I can close my eyes, Johan, and see myself as maybe a seven or eight year old on my knees in the field with a handful of corn or bean seeds. And my grandfather standing above me with a hoe. And in Armenian, he would be saying to me, put the seeds closer or put the seeds further apart. I'd drop the seeds and he would cover them with a hoe. Um, All the while with a cigarette hanging from his lips, Johan. And in those days, some of these guys could smoke. They would never take the cigarette out of their mouth. And half of the cigarette, it was the ash just hanging there and it it didn't fall off. Uh, So, so yeah, all kinds of memories. 
you jump in and, and we'll keep toggling back and forth. It's it's I, I want to say kudos to you. Even so before you were born, you now understand the history. Um, yes, I was able to live through that original Arab oil embargo in the 70s that changed everything. And a few years after, as that was unfolding, I found myself at Ohio State University starting my graduate education. And it was in the crunch of all of this energy um, emergency. And I remember at that point, uh, there were some greenhouse engineers at Ohio State that came up with the concept of putting a double layer of polyethylene over a glass greenhouse that we came to know as double poly over glass just to insulate and uh, and cut cut down a, a little bit on that heat leakage and that energy usage. So yeah, it's it's a lot has changed. Yeah, you bring up the double poly. That's one of the things that I discussed with another friend of mine, Dr. Merle Jensen, who attended Rutgers. So I think, yeah, there was probably the similar research going on at the same time because there was Professor Roberts at Rutgers who I think came up with double poly. And I'm sure then other universities started to conduct research. And that's the kind of greenhouse that I started in, was a greenhouse that utilized double poly in north central Kansas. And, oh gosh, that was such a challenge. Challenge isn't the word I want to use, but that's the, cha- that's the word I'm going to use for the podcast, putting on those, that double poly. But, uh, well, I, I, I didn't read, I, I may have missed that your grandparents were the first generation that, that came over from, from Armenia during that time during a time in an event that I think, quite frankly, a lot of people probably aren't aware of. Um, yeah, it's um, kind of under under the radar. Um, it it had uh, such an effect on on their generation. Um, my grandparents fled uh, as teenagers. They they didn't know each other. You know, they they found their way to the United States on their own. Uh, my grandmother's path was. Um, filled with violent memories of what was happening. Um, and uh, my dad has stories of uh, his parents where uh, his mother had a, um, an infant daughter taken from her arms and uh, the, the Turks would raise them as servants. But uh, not, not to go into a, a dark side on that, um, but, but it's a perceptive question you asked me, Johan, because my childhood and all of what we're talking about is what made me what I am, and and if if my career has been uh, dedicated to agriculture or let's say horticulture, um, I can trace it very easily back two generations to to grandparents, and and I uh, I say any anyone in agriculture who is able to do that, many can. Um, that it's a precious precious part of our lives. What was college like for you? Where, where did you, you mentioned Ohio State. I can't remember. Did you get your PhD or master's from the Ohio State and then did some teaching for a while too, didn't you? Or I, I did. So so the, the path, I'll back up a step. Um, and, and by the way, yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, Rutgers University during that period of time was, was the anchor for greenhouse engineering and, uh, and helped lead the way through um, that first energy embargo and, and crisis, and then it's, it spawned engineering um, accomplishments after that. Um, so uh, after high school, I went. I did my undergraduate work, Johan, at the University of New Hampshire. And the reason that I picked UNH over UMass was that UNH was an hour away from the farm, 
and UMass was two hours away. And uh, being a proud introvert, I was also a little more drawn to the smaller student body and population at, at, New, at New Hampshire. So I did my undergraduate work there with the intention of returning to the family farm and greenhouse operation. And as, as you've walked your path that included graduates, graduate school and, and uh, advanced degrees, I'm sure you have similar stories. It was during my uh, junior and senior year where my undergraduate advisor planted the seed that there's other options. And uh, I had done well enough in my, on the academic side of, of uh, my UNH work that, that he started steering me toward uh, graduate school. And my folks were all for it, uh, to their credit. Uh, and and Johan, after each of my three degrees, after each one, I wanted to come back home to the family farm. But my parents kept pushing and, uh, in essence, uh, were saying, go see what the world have, has to offer. We'll always be here. You can always come back. And that's exactly how it played out for me. So from UNH, I then uh, went up to, uh, to uh, uh, Ohio State out in, in Columbus. And funny story, Johan, during my career, my undergraduate career at UNH, I was home every weekend. Uh, now, I graduated uh, early. I graduated in three and a half years because I loaded up on course. I took as many credits as I could and, and figured, okay, that second half of my senior year, I'll have a living laboratory. I'll graduate and then I'll go back into the uh, the the family farm and greenhouse and and you know at w when I knew I was going on to graduate school it was just this uh, what do they call it now a gap year where a student takes a year off it was for me it was like a gap semester where I finished uh, my bachelor's degree and had uh, essentially nine months before I ended up uh, in Columbus. Uh, so then at at Ohio State that was now for a small town. New Englander, that was the big time. So where the UNH undergraduate body population was 10,000, Johan, Ohio State's graduate student population was 10,000. So, and because I was, and oh, here's something I want to know if, if you were young enough where, where you still did this. About half of the weekends at UNH that I would come home to work, I would hitchhike and throw my thumb out with my laundry bag over my shoulder. And it's so sad. It makes me sad today that society is at a place where the danger and, uh, you know, you, you can't allow that to happen anymore. But I met such interesting people hitchhiking home from Durham, New Hampshire to Andover, Johan. Yeah, it's a shame. But it's cool that you had that experience. I, you know, the the we have so many things in common. I think we've shared some of these before, but a lot of your experiences are very similar to to my college experiences. Starting with, well, and I, I did not grow on a grow up on a farm. I got involved in FFA, and of course, as, as you know, I started picking tomatoes at the local greenhouse there in in Plainville, Kansas, uh, in 1996, and that kind of set me on the stage. I was I was not a good student in high school. The first year and a half or so, and then really just kind of flipped the switch and, and just got after it. FFA really had some great teachers at our small public school there in Plainville, and they really turned me on to science and then uh, went to Fort Hayes State University. It, similar to your experience, I, I probably could have gone to K-State. That's the Land Grand Institution in Kansas, and they have a good ag program. 
However, my family's situation was such that they couldn't pay for me to go to school and I didn't or college and I'd really there were a couple factors. One, I I really wasn't in a hurry to leave my hometown. I knew early on during high school, once I flipped that switch that I wanted to attend the University of Arizona, it was how do I get there? I mean, going there for a bachelor's was out of the question. One, I don't think I was personally ready and financially ready. So I started looking at Fort Hayes State University in Hayes, Kansas. They have a good ag program and it was affordable and it was 20 miles from home. So I could live at home. Parents said, hey, we can give you room and board. Can't pay for college. You get in, you can stay here as long as you like. I said, deal. So I got into Fort Hayes State University. Originally, I was going to go after a biology degree because they had a professor there. He's retired at the time. He's retired now. His name uh, Joe Thomason. And Dr. Joe had a botany class. So in my mind, I was, okay, I got to take, I got to be a biology major. Well, I, re- I received a phone call one day after kind of, I still had some time. I was applying and I received a phone call and it was the department chair of the depart, the ag department at Fort Hayes. Hi, Johan, this is Dr. Greathouse. How are you? And, uh, great. I see you're looking at Fort Hayes State University. Good choice. I see you've a, you're looking at the biology department. Why? And I explained to him and he said, well, he said, you could still take that botany course, but why don't you give the ag department a look? We have lots of scholarships. I was like, oh, okay. So I ended up in the ag department and ended up with a lot of scholarships and started looking at that graduate school opportunity very early on, which I discussed with Dr. Jensen. I reached out to him first semester. And like you said, the UNH to Ohio State mirrors parallels very similarly to what my experience was. 5,000 student body at Fort Hayes State University at the time compared to, gosh, I think University of Arizona's total student population in the early 2000s may have been 25,000. <laughs> so, so it was quite the change, um, but it was a great, a great experience. And it's interesting how similar our experiences have, have been. There, there are so many that have stories like this, Johan. Um, you know, for, for all the complaining we hear about our educational system in the United States. And absolutely, there are things that we need to improve upon and the need to address and accessibility, et cetera. But there's a part of this that I still pinch myself. I'm 69 years old, and I still pinch myself and, and say, as, as I reflect, um, gee, you had an opportunity as, as this small town boy from, you know, kind of nowheresville, Massachusetts, to rise up and take on our educational system and, and kind of ride it as far as it would let you ride. Now, you and I could have both done postdocs. Um, I, I went after my PhD straight into the academic community and started teaching at the University of Maryland in College Park. So, so I followed a, a pretty traditional path. This was in 1982, Johan. Since then, during, during my career and now your early years, um, a lot has changed in that, in my opinion, in, in uh, horticulture, we have more PhDs outside of the academic community than we do now inside. And I, I, I've seen this trend and this shift where uh, horticulture has become much more technical, much more scientific, and, and it has required or it supports having this advanced education within its ranks, 
not just at the university level as professors and researchers. And, and you, you've, um, in several stops along your career, have, have always been kind and thoughtful and brought private sector research, which is how I make my living now, um, to me. And, and we've worked on some exciting projects together. There's more and more of that going on, Johan. And I see more of our university colleagues uh, now making an effort to reach out and work more with the private sector, where two or three decades ago, um, if you were conducting research outside of academia, it was either frowned upon or it wasn't taken seriously. But today, uh, we've got more equal footing. Yeah. What, what prompted you? Did did you leave the University of Maryland to then come back to Massachusetts? How did you make that leap from from what what prompted you to exit academia to pursue your next? Yeah. Okay. What was next so, in life for you? For me to answer that, I first have to say, again, kudos to you as an interviewer. Uh, the questions that you, you're asking are just so perceptive, Johan, and, and I hope it's sounding as interesting to your listeners as it is for you and me to talk about this live. Um, that's a, an excellent question. It's one that um, the answer to the question I think about daily. Um, and, and I'll answer your question, why did I leave academia, the following. Um, I spent two years on the faculty at Maryland, and I loved every minute of it. I enjoyed the teaching. I was just starting to uh, get my research program going. Um, my wife and I, at the time, had our first of two children. Um, and Johan, uh, this, I... I it get, it's emotional for me, but I enjoy describing things this way. Um, I think I paid my parents the ultimate compliment. The driving reason for me leaving academia and with my wife's support, we wanted or chose to bring our children up in an agricultural environment as similar as we could to how I ra was raised. So. So my driving, that reason, Johan, had nothing to do with the job at Maryland. I loved it. So when I reflect, I say, how lucky were you that you were able to choose between something you loved and something you loved even more? So, and oftentimes career paths are adjusted and, and changes are made out of necessity. And, and sometimes they're not positive. You know, it, it's like... Uh, you know, a restructuring of company or a downsizing or laid off or whatever. So my condition or situation was not that at all. Um, and to this day, Johan, I miss, I, I, I gave up the opportunity or the privilege of advising graduate students when I left the academic world and, and teaching undergraduates. Um, so the only regret that I have to this day is that I was not able to train uh, graduate students, masters and PhDs. Um, I found ways to sit on advisory committees, graduate advisory committees with uh, adjunct appointments here and there, Johan. So I've been able to scratch, scratch the itch a little bit. Um, but it was just that, uh, remember when I said a few minutes ago after each degree, I kind of found my way to close that circle. Um, and while my children did not grow up in a three-generation household, 
My wife's parents were two doors down the street. Um, so our children had all four of their grandparents in their daily lives. And that's something that we consider precious to this day. The four of them have now passed uh, the grandparents, but, uh, and now we're the grandparents. So, so that, that was, that's the career path, Johan. I, I, uh, I love my time at Maryland. I was teaching there when Boomer Esiason was quarterbacking the Maryland Terrapins. Well, it's, it's a very honorable, honorable reason that, that you did what you did. And, I commend you for that. Well, thank Make you. That decision, similar decisions made on on my behalf, is graduated college as well. Graduated during the recession, had a young family, no postdoc for me. I was done with graduate school, and so and as I hear you, I mean that that's yeah, you made you made a good either either one is, there was no is a losing. good decision. That's right. right. It, was, it was a win win. There was no, there was no losing, Johan. And uh, yeah, you're bringing up such nice analogies between the career paths and, and, uh, you know, to, to this day, I, I still enjoy interacting with college age, you know, the, the late teens, early twenties, young adults. Uh, I don't have the tolerance for primary school teaching. I, I could not be a middle school or a high school teacher. Uh, but you give me students that want to be there, you know, and are choosing to be in class, uh, and, and, uh, that, that's, that's what I enjoy most. So when you moved back to, uh, Massachusetts, did, did you form your, your company right away and start doing the independent research? No, I did not. Uh, the, the first task, um, and my parents made it real clear, you know, Peter, if you're going to come home, the business needs to grow. So during the first five years or so, you know, I, I left uh, Maryland in 82. So through the mid 80s, Johan, it was all about building greenhouses. And uh, my dad welded. So we built all of our own structures. And um, uh, I enjoyed uh, working with him. I learned uh, basic electrical and plumbing. He had the welding. Um we had the tractors, the excavating. So, you know, I was brought up in, in a, with a philosophy from my dad, Johan, that uh, if you can do it yourself, do it. And if you don't know how to do it, learn how to do it. So you, you don't have to depend on others. And I understand that there's a different philosophy that's opposite of that, that many people operate under. And, and it's, okay, my time's too valuable. I can hire somebody to do that. And there's place in agriculture for both of these philosophies. Uh, I am quite proud of the fact that my dad instilled in me that uh, if you don't know how to do something, teach yourself. And I think that that goes along. It's quite parallel to uh, graduate education that both you and I have experienced. You know, if, if you don't know the answer to a question uh, and you can design some research to answer it, you do that. So I'm sure that subconsciously, some of these things that my dad taught me, and, and he was one with, without the benefit of even a high school education because he lost both of his parents, my fraternal grandparents, when he was a teenager. Um, for, for a man that didn't have the opportunity to finish high school to then be instilling in me someone who's pressed our educational system to its limit, um, that's a really cool thing. So again, you can see that family magnet that keeps pulling me back. And I was fortunate that 
you know, to answer your question, no, the first five years was all about building the family operation. Then we get to the late 80s, Johan, and yes, I'm a trained researcher and I missed it. So I started um, dabbling in the family business. I take a corner of a greenhouse and uh, I I first started doing some work that harkened back to a master's project that my advisor had given me. And that was working with plant growth regulators on geranium crops. And one of those growth regulators is a trade name Florel, which is uh, a compound called ethafon. It's an ethylene hormone producing or, or delivering product. And I started uh, researching that, Johan, not knowing, uh, little did I know in the late 80s, that what I was stumbling upon was going to be a 20-year research career that really defined me as a researcher. So, so the, my ethylene work, uh, I was able to accomplish in the commercial setting. And I think it was whatever standing and goodwill or reputation I had uh, cultivated, Johan, during my time in academia, in graduate school and at Maryland, um, that I was, I was accepted by, by our colleagues. And, uh, and that, that's, that's the rest of the story from my part. The, the Florel Project put me on the map, and from there it allowed me to, um, to do a, a lot of research, a lot of speaking, writing, etc. Yeah, just built that project led built upon itself, then I take it, huh? And that's kind of snowballed into your company today? It did, Johan. It did. It, it, was, it got to a point where um, as fast as I could conduct an experiment, there was a magazine article or a conference presentation waiting in the wings. And um, the momentum started. Um, so it was in 1992, I believe, uh, that with my wife's assistance and support, I started my private uh, research and consulting business. And then through the decade of the 90s into the first years of this century, I was uh, wearing two hats. One was a commercial grower and two was a, a, a private sector researcher. Those were very active years. Um, during my late 30s and, and through my 40s. And that's the part of your career that you're in now, right? So so when I look back, whoa, I mean, that candle was being burnt on both ends, Johan, but it was, oh, the garden center and the greenhouses were booming. Um, I refer in in uh, the ornamental industry, I often, my audiences often hear me refer back to the late great 80s. It was during the 90s that mass marketing and the big box stores started to appear. And since then, a lot of our commercial production has shifted from small operations to some mega operations that you and I have both visited and stood in, these greenhouses where you can hardly see the end of the greenhouse. Um, so it was that, that late 80s, early 90s, where everything was going great guns in, in the garden center ornamentals industry for small operations. And then it got to a point where my research business, Johan, grew to a point where it, I, ne I needed to cut back on the family commercial operation. And so here I am back in you know the 60s and 70s, where I described to you earlier, 
we were building the greenhouse operation. The farm operation was being de-emphasized. So we were playing both sides of that. And uh, lo and behold, I end up in the 90s, uh, you know, playing both sides of this. Am I, am I uh, conducting research or am I growing a crop of geraniums? Well, I was doing both, but uh, the research was, was pulling me, was drawing me. Um, and, and it, but I didn't want to give up the commercial grower, Johan. What, what do you think prompted companies to start looking and in, in investing more in third-party research versus academic research? Oh, another great question. Um, and you're going to have an answer to this being on the other, other side of the conversation. Um, in my opinion, what I saw, or let's, here's a comment that I hear often, Johan, from, from companies that, that uh, conduct contract research with me. And, and many of them also, they will go to the private sector, like to someone like myself, and they will also go to a university or two because each of us can offer different things. Um, so what I hear from them over the years is, and um, the, I, I hear from them, we come to you, Peter, because we know you're the one doing the research. You're the one touching the plants, measuring the plants, interpreting how our product is behaving. Where we understand at a university, it's being handed from the major advisor to a graduate student or an undergraduate student. Now, I'm torn, Johan. I don't want this to sound like it's a criticism because it is absolutely how we teach our young scientists how to conduct science. We, we need to give these types of experiments. And I said to you, one of my master's projects was working on these plant growth regulators. That was something that my advisor, Dr. Harry Tayama, gave me. It, the experiment was designed. It wasn't me going to a library, coming up with a question. This was him training me how to conduct horticultural research with, with in, in the floriculture realm. So I don't want this to sound like a criticism at all, but but I have heard that from from um, manufacturers and, and companies and and. Once one story was well, all we got from the university was data written, handwritten data on a piece of paper. Well, that's that's not what they get when they're working with the actual scientist. Let me stop there. Let you pipe in. Yeah, I think my my experience has been a couple of things, and I agree with you. It, it's it is the way that young researchers and scientists learn how to conduct research. I think one of the challenges that I've seen over the years is is simply. With that comes the expectation that the time to get the data and the final report is equivalent to the time it takes to get a master's or PhD degree. In companies, as quickly as things are moving, it's time to market. It's proving independently that their product does what they claim it to do or discovering maybe new ways that a product can be used. So it's kind of a difference between basic and applied research. Basic research. Yeah, you know, very uh, geared towards academia, applied research anymore. It's like, hey, if we can get the answers we need in six months versus two years, a company's going to decide to do it in six months. It's time to market. And, and it's not always about, and I'll reflect on again on my, my friend, Dr. Jensen. One of the things I'm, I heard several times during my master's degree, because I worked on an applied research project, was it's not always about the 5% significant difference. It's the five dollar difference. So if those two align, because then you have, because you're always going to have your critics. Well, was it was it statistically different? 
Yes, and here's your ROI, which is what a grower is going to be looking at. Like, oh, wow. Okay, it's statistically significant, but what, what's my return on investment? And so there's a lot of different challenges. I, and I've been in situations many times where oh, I would have preferred to have ran a, a trial through a university when you start looking at overhead and you start looking at timing, et cetera. And from a business standpoint, it's like, uh, it makes it very difficult to make that decision. And it, it is on a case-by-case basis. So I, I'm with you. Having, having gone through that system, I certainly want to see as many opportunities be afforded to universities. And probably another challenge is from the academic side is, is the way that the departments have evolved over time. Of course, I've not been in that on the other side of it as a faculty member, but I was a graduate student during a time where you could, departments were shifting from the department no longer really providing the financial support. Faculty members had to go out and search for, for the grants, et cetera, et cetera. So it's been kind of a combination. And to that, additionally, companies have been investing in their own R&D departments. So now they have put forth the dollars to hire the PhDs to conduct the research so that way they can keep it internalized. Because another thing that you get from working with academia more often than not versus third-party independent data or internal data is you can keep that information to yourself. Whereas in academia, it's all about what? Publish or perish? So they want to share that information. So companies don't necessarily want this information published. It's proprietary. You know, there's ways to get around that, of course, but so it is, it is a little complicated and yeah, that's my perception on it. See, Johan, how your, your perception there is, is kind of mirroring what, what I said earlier, where, um, yeah, back in the 70s and 80s, there weren't many departments, R&D departments with the PhDs that, that you're describing. And so you're, you're kind of reinforcing what I said earlier. We've got more PhDs outside of the academic, academic uh, arena. Um, you mentioned on statistics, Johan. That's, that's an excellent thing to bring up, um, especially when we're discussing topics that growers are listening to and interested in. And you made a really good point about the difference between, you know, a statistical 5% difference versus return on investment. And m- most, most of my research over now 40 years, most of my research has not been accompanied by statistical analysis. And our university colleagues, as you deftly referenced, uh, need to publish and statistical analysis is uh, an integral part of a research report. Um, I take pride in reflecting on the Florel project, Johan, where, again, 20 years of research looking at how ethylene stimulates branching, inhibits internode elongation, controls the shift from vegetative to reproductive growth, 20 years of researching those three main effects of this simple plant hormone. And I'd say 95% of it was not accompanied by statistical analysis. Now, every now and then I feel guilty, Johan, that, that I didn't do these analyses. But in my mind, over my career, this is the rule that I share with companies when they come to me like you have done over the years. Um, In my opinion or experience, for a grower to make the decision 
to change from product A to product B or from crop cultural practice X to Z. That that grower needs to see a difference in the crop that's visually accompanied by about 15 or 20% in my opinion. In other words, if we're using a growth regulator to keep tomato, young tomato plants in, in bedding packs short, in order for the grower to look at two treatments and say, yes, that one is shorter to my eyes. In my experience, that tomato plant has to be 15%, 20% shorter than the control. So if we're looking at a six inch or a five inch tall control tomato plant, in order for the grower to say, okay, that growth regulator uh, prevented these from stretching, um, he's, he's looking to get a four inch plant compared to the five inch untreated plant, if I'm describing that correctly. So, so while I, I say this, statistics is a tool in a toolbox. And I've also learned, Johan, over the years, as I deal with more and more individuals like yourself in your career stops, I'm dealing with more who are PhDs. And I've come to learn that you might want to run your statistical analysis in ways that you're comfortable. So it's actually, at times, it's a waste of time for me to run the statistics, knowing that the PhD, my primary contact at company A or B, is going to run his or her own statistics to show what he or she wants to show. So you you brought that point up about ROI and statistics. I, I thought it was uh, important enough that that I, I want to fill in and, and color in between the lines a little bit or with my own experience. Those are very good points. And it kind of leads me to my next question, which is, and this, it also ties into your podcast, is you focus on the small to medium-sized grower. And they may not be able to afford to do the, as a, as a farm, they're they, they're forced maybe to do their own research, which is a good idea in, in evaluating a new product, right? How many, how many times we do field trials, greenhouse trials all the time, even, even regardless if it's an academic trial or a third-party trial, what's the first thing a grower wants to do when you present them with a new product when they're accustomed, they have their program, right? Their livelihood depends on this crop being successful. What's the first thing they want to do? That's great. You have the data. I want to try it in my farm or on my greenhouse. So what, what tips might you have for that small to medium-sized grower that, if they're not, should be taking more of a academic perspective on adopting new products? So that way they can, with confidence, say, oh yeah, that 20% wasn't just a fluke. I set up an experiment in such a way that I can make a, conf- I can make a decision confidently to adopt this product or not. Yeah. Wonderful question, Johan. I've, in the past decade, um, one of the conference presentation topics that I've delivered the most is exactly this for growers how to set up, how to conduct meaningful trials in your greenhouse or on your farm. Uh, and, and that it all. In my opinion, Johan, it boils down to the simple two-syllable word, control. And I spend most of the time in that presentation or in written articles or in a discussion like this one um, talking about 
the two levels of meaning that the word control has when we are conducting research, or in this case, a down and dirty grower trial. And by the way, in terms of experiment, um, research, uh, techniques and whatnot, Johan, um, there's really no difference between applied and basic research. If, if, if we're doing good science, if we're practicing good research habits, um, I, I dislike it tremendously when I get a sense that a researcher is frowning upon the word applied in research. And we need both. We need the basic research, which, you know, one might say, okay, that's the high-powered laboratory university level research. But equally, we need the more applied practical research where we're actually just comparing product A to product B. And you've, you've brought that up. And a lot of the work you and I have done together has been applied research, but because both of us are PhDs and live in the world of science, our experiments that, that you and I tend to design together have a little bit of a flair. They have a little bit of uh, uh, an, an, a direction that is, that is aiming towards some more basic questions. So, so it's control, Johan, and we'll come back to that in a minute after you make a comment. Yeah, I think what you're saying is making sure that you have a comparison. I always, when you say control, I think what you're saying is having a, your grower standard or your current practice and your experimental treatment. And, and also don't change too many things at once. Yes, yes, yes. So you just, you just touched on the, that two levels, the two meanings that, that I think that word control brings. So we have to teach growers, number one, when, when you and I use the word control, we're talking about what, what you just said, the, the, your standard procedure, or I will say it in different words, your untreated plant. So if we're using a growth regulator or a new fertilizer, a control is going to be a plant that we don't spray with that growth regulator, or it's going to be a plant that we don't use that new fertilizer on. It might be the plant that we use the standard fertilizer that we're using around the range on. And uh, we need that, Johan, because there has to be a, a basis for comparison, right? And, and so if now, okay, let me, let me just skip. The, the best way for me to describe this to you is uh, back during the Florel years, and it was pre-internet, Johan. So our communication was either by regular mail, where I'd receive a letter from a grower in maybe Hayes, Kansas, saying, Dr. Conjoyan, I heard you at the Ohio Short Course talk about this. I have a question. Or it might be a phone call. Johan, how many times I had phone calls and now picture, I'm standing in my greenhouse operation, you know, doing my daily commercial grower tasks, but I was also accessible as cell phone technology, you know, became mainstream, uh, accessible to growers. So how many times I would stand in a greenhouse, take a break. I'm talking to a grower from, you know, I don't know, one or two time zones away from Massachusetts, U.S. growers, sometimes Canada. And Johan, the, 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 the conversation would go something like this. 
Um, Dr. Kinjoyan, I, I treated Florel, you know, I treated my ivy geranium hanging baskets with Florel. I treated my, my uh, petunias with Florel. And I'm not sure what I'm seeing. And Johan, you could answer this question for me. My, my first question to the grower was, how do the Florel treated baskets compare to the ones you didn't spray? <laughs> and how many times, Johan, there'd be a, a silence for a few seconds on the other end of the line. And there'd be an answer, something like this. Oh, I heard you speak at the conference. I trusted what you were saying. I just went and sprayed everything. <laughs> and then it was a teachable moment, Johan. I'm laughing because it's it's amusing, but it, it I'm not laughing at them. I'm, I'm laughing with them. So it then afforded me that opportunity to say, um, please, please, always leave a few baskets untreated. I'm not asking you to do any extra work. It's actually less work because you'll finish spraying the crop sooner. But please always leave yourself this untreated section of the crop or else how are we going to compare? How are we going to make our decisions? So, so that level of experiment control that we use the word control to mean, and it, it's another word or name for the plant that we don't treat. The other level of the word control that I like to teach, and you hit on this also, is controlling the experiment itself. And that is, you, you mentioned it earlier, don't, don't in, insert too many variables, don't try to do too much. And I'll stretch that a little and say your, your experimental control, not your treatment control, the experimental control is, um, okay, let's do this in a way that can be reproduced. Let's do this um, if we're running an experiment on a bench of geraniums. Don't pick the bench right next to the vent. You know, pick a bench in the middle of the greenhouse so that if we go to make decisions that are going to affect, as you brought up, the return on investment, we know that we're working with good numbers and, and we're making good decisions. So, Johan, that for small, medium, size, any size grower, um, learning how to conduct basic trials. And, and it, it all goes, takes us back to middle school. Um, for me, it was junior high school back in those days where we first learned or were exposed to the scientific process. Yeah, absolutely. And putting it into real life. Yeah. It, there, well, like you said, you've done whole presentations on this and many things came up as you were talking like, okay, yeah, make sure you separate your, separate your treatments, especially if you're spraying something because you don't want drift. And the control part is have dedicated personnel that are responsible for the trial. So that way it's done consistency, consistently con because consistency is very important. So yeah, we probably do a whole session on that as, as well. Um, but I do want to ask you, is kind of transitioning from that, your, your business, your, your, you mentioned earlier, you've kind of shifted from floriculture to edible crops. Um, you also have a podcast. Is there anything more about your 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 business that you want to discuss? Maybe some of the exciting projects you're working on before I jump into my next question? Well, thank you for, for asking that, Johan. And yes, there is. Uh, now, you, you've had Michelle Klieger on um, as a guest, and uh, Michelle is, uh, and I have uh, joined up as uh, podcast creators. We call The Grower and The Economist. You were an early guest of ours on the podcast. So thank you for reciprocating and, and inviting her and uh, myself onto yours. Happy to um, jump in and, and help out. 
So um, she and I started the podcast. Michelle is an agricultural economist. I'm the the grower. So when we titled it The Grower and the Economist, it was, again, to to bring both sides of that um, part of agriculture to our growers. And as you referenced, we, we um, tailor the podcast to small and medium-sized greenhouse and farm operations. So an exciting project that I'm in the process of creating or building, Johan, is now um, kind of a, uh, a project where I've spent my career dreaming about doing this, and it's finally time for me to do it. I am creating a project that I have titled or named Small Greenhouse and Farm Technology. The acronym for that is SGAFT, S-G-A-F-T, SGAFT. I'm in the process of building my website and uh, have a uh, workshop at this year's Cultivate, which will be our first official SCAFT um, conference activity. Now, Johan, I am unapologetic in saying I am building this project to help fellow small growers and farmers. And my story is that for most of my career, I've sat in presentations about technology Going back to colleagues that we started this conversation with, Eric and Mark and and many others, and as a small grower, I've sat through these conversations knowing full well that I cannot afford what they're showing on the screen. I cannot afford that equipment. It's beyond me. Um, And it's more frustrating than it is helpful for me in those presentations. So, So I've decided that this project... Yes, it will show the the state of the art, but it's not going to spend all of the time on the state of the art. We're going to translate down to the small grower operation level. And I want to create this website, Johan, where it's a place, it's a space where small growers and farmers know they can get information that's tailored to their needs. And along those lines, I have a principle or a philosophy that that I'll be describing in this project that I refer to as a technology ladder. And that that is um, to try and um, share with small growers that you don't have to jump to the top rung of the ladder all in one step. You don't have to get to state of the art. Just learn enough so that you can understand what rung of the technology ladder you're currently on, and then educate yourself so that you can take the next step up to the next rung. You don't have to jump to the top of the ladder at once. And along the way, you want to educate yourself in a way that that whatever rung you're leaving, you don't say, I wasted my money on that step. You, you want to be able to integrate and, and make a plan. Um, and I find that lacking. I find that there's not enough information available for small operations. So, so this is going to be a safe place. Um, I've got uh, started to attract sponsorships and, and companies that, that I'll link to on the website. But thank you for letting me share that, Johan. It's the first time in public that I've gone into that kind of detail on this SCAFT project. Oh, wow. We heard it here first. That's cool. <laughs> Breaking news. So how do we define a small to medium-sized grower? And before you answer that, for a lot of different types of people listen to this to this podcast, and I'm 
I've geared it to be more eclectic. So if they're in field ag, you know, they may be learning something about greenhouse agriculture and vice versa. So in greenhouse agriculture, we tend to focus on the top 100 greenhouses, which off the top of my head, we're probably looking at greenhouses that are, I don't know, 800,000 square feet to over, you know, well over a million or, or higher and much higher. And so how do we, how, is there a definition for small to medium sized grower or how do you define small to medium sized grower? Very cool question. Let's do the greenhouse side first. Um, for greenhouses, we hear phrases around our industry that include under an acre. We hear um, a half acre tossed about a lot. Um, and, and when I say under an acre, Johan, that, that's not the land. It doesn't include the land the greenhouses are standing on, right? That, this is covered space. So uh, my family's operation grew from the, the single greenhouse in 1960 to its peak at 55,000 square feet. So I was at, you know, under an acre and a half, over an acre. I consider myself a small greenhouse operator at that size. Uh, there are some fellow growers of mine that might have 10,000 or 20,000 square feet that look at my operation at 55,000 and say, you're a big grower. But in most cases, um, the large operations, you, you, you describe that nicely. The, the top 100, the ones that get a lot of ink. And, and oh, by the way, Johan, this, this is part of the justification or the, the need for a project that I'm describing is there's so much ink and attention given to those large operations that I feel that a lot of small ones get forgotten. Or feel forgotten. So, uh, and, and it's like everything, you know, the 80 20 rule that applies to so much of what we do. Um, if we look at number of operations in the US, you know, 80%, it might not be exactly 80, but most of them are small operations. And those top 100 uh, make up the 20% of operations, but they kind of um, take all the air out of the room, if you hear what I'm saying. Um, and and uh, so we need on the greenhouse side to answer your question. I'd say under an acre. Let's let's say uh, half an acre might be a sweet spot for an average small operation. And then on the farm side of it, that's a little more difficult, Johan, because um, you know the outdoor agriculture is by definition more extensive than the greenhouse is intensive. So. Um, it, it's hard for me to to give you what I consider a small operation. The the best I can do is is to say in my in my mind a small farm is one where the nuclear family you you know that that family operation is that comprises most of the workforce where there might be one or two employees from the outside that are hired. Um, you might have a much better definition of a small farm than than that, but that's how I operate. No, those are good definitions, and it, I don't know. Have you have you observed, like I've observed? It seems I don't have the data to back this up that there is kind of this, I guess, renaissance period or resurgence in homesteading and looking at at more and more people looking at doing some level of agriculture, um, and this might be a way for them to expand their enterprise and starting a small farm. That's where I started. I started on a small farm. That small greenhouse, that greenhouse operation in Kansas that where I started picking tomatoes, it expanded. Well, I think we added four bays 
during my time there, but those four bays, we still were probably just under one acre of controlled environment. And hey, that that operation provided a livelihood for the ownership and its employees, right? So we can't dismiss these these small businesses. And I think you're right. I, I would like to see the numbers of how many small farms, small greenhouses there are compared to large ones to see what that looks like. Um, and it's good to hear that you know you're you're champion championing those those farmers and giving them that that resource. So that is that is very cool. Let me know if I can help out in any way. Well, thank you, Johan. I, I think we we have so many shared experiences, and I think we're both agreeing that that this group of growers um, appreciates the attention. And I, as I view things, um, let's go up to thirty thousand foot altitude and look down for a moment, Johan. Traditionally, through my career, we use the round number of ten thousand greenhouse operations in the U.S. As we went through the Great Recession, and in combination with consolidation that results from the big box, uh, the that invention, that that creation of the big box market, coming out of the Great Recession, that number of ten thousand dropped to what I saw. Uh, the data I saw was six thousand. So the industry, the number of farmers, greenhouse operators, almost fell in half as a result of both of those events. And I think in your generation, the Great Recession is, is a, a point like 9-11 is for your generation, where you guys grew up with, with these things. In my generation, it was the Kennedy assassination and the Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, both Kennedys, um, the Vietnam War. So, so each generation has these, these points of reference and it's amazing how the Great Recession affected our industry. Now, I will absolutely agree with what you said, and it's a wonderful word. You, you use renaissance. And, and for me, m- much, must, I'm sorry, much of my energy is aimed at, okay, we, we built this industrial model of agriculture coming out of World War II. It served our country and the world well for a couple of generations, but now we're showing or we're learning that it's not sustainable. So much of my energy, Johan, as I as I wind my career down, is aimed at the question, how much of industrial agriculture can we return to the family farm, to the locally grown movement? So where you said a moment ago, we've got a lot of Gardeners who are looking to cr- grow a more significant amount of of produce. Um, I'm looking more at the professional grower and asking the question: Can that farm that I described growing up on, that had such an impact on who I am, can we make that? farm relevant again. I was sad that we had to stop farming, Johan, in the 70s. Yes, we were replacing it with flowers and greenhouses, but it saddened me that a family like mine could not make a living farming in New England. And so, again, things come full circle. Um, I use the phrase from flowers to food. I think at this point in the conversation, 
listeners might say, well, Peter, you should back up a step. You started in food. So it's actually from food to flowers back to food. So it's closing that circle. And it's, it's not coming back to food or edible crops for the first time. So, Johan, there's, there's so much that we share in terms of experiences and philosophies. Uh, we could go on and on. Uh, I, I enjoy talking to you uh, about science. And I want to say I wish you the best of luck with your podcast and your endeavor. Do you remember when, soon after we met, when we started working together, Johan, do you remember me at one point saying, you have a good radio voice? <laughs> I made that I think comment. so. I think I, so. Yeah. I made that comment to you, and, and it was uh, in the days, uh, knowing that we were going to connect this morning, I said, ah, oh, he really found the right spot. This is good. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to be doing this more often. You know, this is a passion, passion project of mine and so much so there's so many people I want to to speak with and have them share their stories and their involvement in agriculture and I really appreciate you joining me today. I do want I do want to touch on one more thing and it's a little bit more personal because I I I really admire this about you. Um if you don't mind sharing if you don't that's okay. But you we all have our personal sides as well and you do something really interesting. I don't know many people who do this. I know people who run ultra marathons or um, they have certain things about but you are an avid climber <laughs> i am johan it's uh i call it my sick addiction to altitude <laughs> uh, and and it was it was actually my career that uh, that put me in this position i can remember the day uh, it was a uh, for anyone of my generation. Um, there was a grower association, national association named BPI, Betting Plants Incorporated, and the BPI um, actually went head to head with OFA, uh, the Ohio Florist Association, and and that's where I was weaned at Ohio State. I went through Ohio State in graduate school, Johan, during the height of OFA, and and it was. Uh, there was um, BPI was created or run by um, Will Carlson, a very well-known extension specialist at Michigan State University. OFA was run by my master's advisor, Harry Tayama at Ohio State. And there was this um, competition between the two um, organizations um, and it, but it was a BPI conference that took me out to Denver, Colorado to speak. And it was 1992, Johan. And I remember looking out at those snow-capped mountains and calling my wife saying, we have to come out here to visit. This is, this, this is beautiful out here. And it was uh, in 2005 that I had a chance to climb to the summit of my first 14er. And you, for those listeners who don't understand what 14er is, it's a mountain peak that is at 14,000 feet in, in elevation. And Colorado has 58 of these peaks, more than any other state. California has 10. That's the closest. So there are 58 14ers in Colorado. And uh, I got that bug back in 05. And today I've stood on the top of 43 of the 58. And, and so I've got 15 left and about five of those, I have no business even thinking about climbing. But so that leaves me 10 or a dozen more uh, to finish this trek. 
Yeah, I think that's so neat. I think one of the things you told me, one of the lessons you learned along the way was, I started with the easy ones. Maybe I should have started with some of the more challenging ones and worked my way back. Does that wait? Is that do I have that right? You have that absolutely right. I had back surgery last year, and I'm looking at the 15 that are left, and I'm saying to myself, "You dummy! You you did all the, early, the easy ones early." And oh, by the way, I I should nip that in the bud. There is no easy 14er. It's not easy to get yourself up to that altitude where you can't breathe. You can't suck in air fast enough. Um, but but the more challenging ones are left on the uh, uh, on the list and. So I'm just careful. I want to make sure that I get home. But there are many times where I'll shoot part of my video and uh, it'll be looking down, downhill. And uh, the, the comment will be, OK, you don't want to fall here or else you won't be making it home. But uh, I try to keep myself in safe situations. And Yeah, because I mean, this is not these are not hiking trails. And I'm sure you have special equipment that you need to use during these these adventures, right? Well, I'm not a technical climber, so okay. I don't I don't get into that that part of it. Most of most of this hiking or climbing is is on on trails, but when you get up above tree line, it, you know, a trail can disappear pretty quickly. Um, I you look for the stacked stones that people put there called cairns and uh, and you lead your way that way. But anyway, what elevation are you you at in in Massachusetts? I am uh, 100 feet above sea level. Okay, so how do you how do you prepare for your for your your time in Colorado? That that is good. Hold on just a second, uh, Johan. I I have a, someone's installing carpet, and he's oh re- yeah, sure. He's ready to leave. I'll be right back. Okay. Okay, I'll need you to unmute. I muted just in case there was background noise. There, how's that? Good to go. Okay, sorry about that. No, that's okay. So, so yeah, the acclimation um, took me a few years to to learn um, what I needed to do to acclimate myself. The first couple of fourteeners, um, I came I came down from the peaks uh, with some altitude sickness, which was for me it was headache and um, a little slight nausea that you know ended up in bed for a few hours. So when I when I go out from sea level and you, you may have heard this term growing up in Kansas. They they call me a flatlander. You know the people out in the mountains because I came from sea level. Um, so I've uh, worked out a pretty reliable three day acclimation routine. So I know what to do on day one, day two, and and uh, I'll, I I won't attempt a peak uh, until the fourth day. Oh, gotcha. Okay, and you you are planning to go out again this year? You know, after I. Uh, this time last year, I was scheduling my back surgery for some disc disc work and stenosis um, address addressing some stenosis. So this time last year, I was hoping that I'd be scheduling this trip, and uh, I made my hotel reservations a couple of weeks ago. So so I'm luckily enough through through made it far enough through my recovery that my physical therapist gave me a green light and her blessing and and with the one caveat johan that uh, just remember you can do whatever you want but do it slowly and you're not a teenager (laughs) (laughs) yeah good well i i hope you have an awesome awesome trip later this year so with 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 that is there anything i didn't ask that you want to share or that I should have asked? No, you. thank you for asking or, or letting me describe that new project. Um, this this uh, 
pet project I'm really excited about, Bill Hunt. So, um, no, that we covered a lot of ground. We and, did. And it was kind of, um, well, you and I have always been able to communicate seamlessly. Michelle's easy to communicate with. You're easy to communicate with. So, um, yeah, uh, you let me know if there's anything that I can do to help. We've had conversations about your career path and, you know, I, I like what you're doing. You got a good head on your shoulders and, you know, the way I figure it, you, you could do this. You might end up doing this for a long time, or you might end up tomorrow in another position somewhere. But that's why we spent all of these years in graduate school. So we had these, this flexibility, right? That's correct. That's correct. Maybe my last question for you would be, what advice might you have for the younger generation going into floor culture based on kind of what your experience and where you see the industry today? Well, what a nice question to, and to wrap this up with. I'm, I'm encouraged. I'm excited about the opportunities that our young farmers and growers have in front of them. And, and I think that excitement is related to this renaissance that you mentioned, this return of agriculture to the family farm um, that, that I'm describing, Johan. So, so I think um, where 20 years ago, I might have been a little less optimistic about this. I am more excited by the day that we, we are creating some avenues that people can enter agriculture. Now, Michelle will tell you as an agricultural economist, Michelle Klieger, that um, the barrier to entry for agriculture is, is still high. It, it's, it's expensive to buy land and build greenhouses. So I recently wrote an article in my magazine column with a couple of your generation women. And we talked a lot about parents and how they influenced, and both of these women are um, on in supply side, supply chain companies in agriculture. And uh, they both were born into family operations. And it was uh, a month after we published that article in GPN, Johan, that I got an email from a a woman working in a greenhouse operation of a friend, a friend, a, an acquaintance of mine in Ohio, and uh, she had read the article and and made a very diplomatic, made a point in a diplomatic and, and very um, uh, sensitive way, saying, "Hey, you know, I I didn't grow up in in a business. I I I'm employed by a family operation. Not all of us had the." opportunity to grow into or be born into a business. So I feel that you missed, you know, one angle of this about having uh, the, the general topic was gender bias in horticulture. So I think bringing it back to your, your question, Johan, um, th- these, whether male or female, this younger generation, this next generation of leaders that is emerging for us, um, I'm pleased with the opportunities that they have. I think that the the industry, the horticultural industry, is is going to be a little bit easier to break into, to crack into, um, if 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 we can, um, you know, take a slice of that 
pie from industrial agriculture. I'm not naive to think all of agricultural production can be returned to the local farm. We do need a level. We need both. It's it's not a zero-sum game. We just need to encourage the locally grown and help the industrial side become a little more sustainable, become a little more regenerative. Um, so maybe if we can take some of the pressure off of that part of agriculture and produce more locally, it will allow some of these big industrial farmers to farm more sustainably. Very good points. So with that, I, I just want to remind people and also ask you to confirm, you're still writing your article on a regular basis, correct? Or? I am. I have a column in Greenhouse Product News, GPN Magazine, that's called Duets. And uh, that comes each each column I invite. You've written one with me, um, a, an industry, an academic or industry expert. And we have a casual, a nice conversation in writing as if we're sitting in someone's living room or sitting around a kitchen table talking about his or her uh, area of expertise. So thank you for letting me share that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I want to make sure that people know how to reach out to you or stay in follow along with your endeavors. So you, ha- you have your new project, you have your existing article, and your podcast, Grower and the, the Economist with Michelle. Um, is there anything else you want to mention before we conclude? I think just building on this comment about our next generation, Johan, and I think uh, I'll leave you with this, this uh, comment uh, where five minutes ago I talked about how Ohio State and Michigan State, BPI, OFA, were butting heads during the 70s and 80s, and it was a competition. Uh, I think the landscape has changed significantly since then. So my calling card or um, my comment to fellow agriculturists today is uh, we're stronger together. We all need to work together, whether it's within the United States or, you know, across the planet. So, so the collaboration, the cooperation, um, I'd like our young, young growers or young farmers who, who, or, or youngsters that don't know they're going to be farmers yet. I want them to know that um, there are some old white guys that are welcoming and embracing them. And, and, and there, there is a population of us that is not so entrenched in the way things used to be uh, that, that we were afraid of change. So I think together we're stronger. Uh, and I'm trying to do my best to share whatever experience and wisdom I've accumulated over the years uh, to help these youngsters uh, get their, their feet on the ground. Yeah, I agree with you. A lot of collaboration and we are stronger together. 100%. Well, with that, Peter, thank you very much for joining me today. Hang tight as uh, we will chat offline here in a moment. But I also want to say a word to the audience. Thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of the Ag Show podcast. Here comes the standard like and subscribe, share with your friends. <laughs> and thank you for joining us. And Peter, pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you, Johan, for having me. 